0: all right let's grab our bibles and open up to psalm 34 psalm 34 as we continue a series we've entitled fear factor psalm 34 we're going to read up and through our text this morning we'll be starting in verse 1 psalm 34 it's after genesis before revelation Right, these are some of the best jokes I got, folks. You got, you got to work with me here, okay? All right, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 34 of the book of Psalms. David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him who who were radiant. They who looked at him were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cries out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no want to those who fear Him. The young lion lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the fear of the Lord, who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Fear is a reality that all of us carry. Over the last two years, we have seen the United States of America grow very fearful. And the constant bombardment from our mainstream media concerning the COVID pandemic It instilled a fear in the hearts and minds of many of our populace. And fear can be exploited. It can be manipulated. It can move people to do things that they don't want to do. And as a result, individuals who would exploit that type of fear, take advantage of that type of fear for their own personal gains, or for their own uh, personal pleasures, see that in an individual, capitalize upon it, and move masses through the, inst- in- the instilling of fear within them. All of us remember that every single morning during the pandemic, we woke up either to our television, newspaper, or our, our smartphones, and we were told how many cases how many hospitalizations, how many deaths, each and every day. Only one side was painted for us. Only one side of the coin was given to us. And after time went on, we became incredibly fearful because the other side of the uh, coin was never revealed to us. That many had mild cases, that many uh, fared very well, that many didn't require to go to the hospital. Now, why do I bring all of this up? It's because of a book that Dr. Mark McDonald wrote talking about the United States of fear. We have become a very fearful society. You know, if a person chooses to wear a mask or not, that's their choice. But I've never understood why a mask was needed when you're in the middle of an open field of 40 acres or you're in your car and you're all by yourself. Is it an indication that fear has gripped their heart so significantly that they're doing things now that would be considered irrational? See, God knew that fear could be exploited regardless of what the catalyst was, that created that fear within an individual. It could be an idea. It could be a a physical harm. It could be uh, a governmental system. God knew that we would be brought to positions and places within our Christian walk where fear would either have us to obey the Lord or to disobey the Lord. Fear is an incredibly powerful emotion. In fact, as we saw in our second session together concerning the concept of fear, the emotion of fear, we called it a natural emotion. We clarified that natural really means after the fall. And we found that in Genesis chapter 3, fear was the first emotion listed for us as Adam hid because he was afraid because they were naked. So to remedy this, God says over and over and over again, fear not, fear not. Jesus said it in the New Testament, do not fear what man can do to the body, but what God can do to the soul. But there's another side of the coin concerning fear. There's a fear that we've just discussed that will keep you from being obedient to God. As Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, courage is not the absence of fear, it is simply the assertion that something is more important than that fear. The other side of the coin is that there is a fear that will lead you to obey the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament it is called the fear of the Lord. But what is is that? What does it mean and how does it play out in the life of a New Testament Christian, a Christian today? That's what we hope to discover in our session today. As we began last week, we saw in Psalm 34 that David invites us to fear the Lord. It's an invitation, and it's preceded by the verse, taste and see that the Lord is good. It is this fear that we're going to explore. An individual who carries this fear with them is an individual that will not lack. But what does it mean? What does it look like? How can one word be used in two different manners and and have such differing definitions? And that's what we'll learn today. The Bible is clear that we as believers need to be careful on how we react to our emotion of fear. We need to contextualize it, we need to think rationally through those moments in time that fear uh, wells up within us, no matter what the stimulus may be to draw that fear from us. The reason we embarked in this is because I want to deal with that vulnerability within all of us to help us shore it up in our hearts that it'll no longer be exploitable again. And that is our hope as we continue on in this subject this morning. Now David says something very interesting after inviting people to enter into the fear of the Lord. And again, there's some ambiguity concerning what that means. You know, we talk about a bad fear, if you will. We talk about a good fear. But what does it really mean? And what are the differences? And how do I know which one I have, etc.? But then he goes on to say something very interesting in verse 11. To those who are listening, he talks about teaching the fear of the Lord. It's something that can be taught to an individual. He calls the recipients or the, he calls the individuals in whom he's speaking to little children. Some have speculated that the men in whom he was speaking to, the 400, brought their families to the cave of Abdullam, and that's who he's addressing here at this time. But history also tells us that when people began to teach, they often took the role of a father, teaching a child. So this isn't a derogatory term. It's not saying that the recipients of what Uh, david is saying are immature he's just taking the role of a teacher and teaching one who would require the teaching regardless of that individual's age either way we now learn from the very first verse after the invitation that the fear of the lord is something that we can learn what does that mean It means that knowledge is involved. It's the the imparting of some knowledge that will create in me this fear of the Lord that is something I should desire and want. So, how does that come about? How does that knowledge come about? He's going to show us in a very practical way what the fear of the Lord looks like in the life of an individual. He's going to give us two very distinct characteristics of the fear of the Lord in the life of an individual. But first, he's going to entice his audience by asking them a question. He has them assembled. He says, this is something that I can teach you. Therefore, knowledge is involved. And with any knowledge, an application is required. And that's when knowledge transforms to wisdom. But he asks a question. As any good teacher would to stimulate the curiosity and the interest of those in whom he is teaching, he asks this question. Notice with me in verse 12. Now, who is or who is the man among you who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? He's asking the question, who wants to really live? Who wants the good life? Now, there's something I need to teach you, uh, talk to you about as a Bible teacher that is incredibly important for proper interpretation of the Scriptures. We must define words like life and good biblically and not subjectively. Okay? If I were to ask people, what do you consider life? If I had 10 people, I probably would get 10 answers. If I were to ask people what the word good means, I would, again, if I asked 10 people, would probably get 10 different answers. It's a subjective perspective that we have on on words that we use. Often individualized. Defined by our own personal wants and desires or by personal experiences that we have had. But God talks about life. Paul talked about good and assigned much different definitions to both. For example, when we come to the word life. Notice with me in John 10.10, should be on the screen behind me. Jesus speaking, first referring to Satan, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So there is a life that Jesus offers that is more abundant than life one can have here on this earth showing that there's a contrast there's a difference between the two Jesus said I'm the way the true truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me it is imperative that we define words properly biblically if we're going to interpret them accurately Okay, I believe that there are many today who are living, but yet they are merely existing in this world. There's no real subsidence to their life. They walk around with a void in the center of their heart. They go day by day week by week, month by month, not knowing what they're living for. They don't know what is considered a good life. And when asked to define it, they have to consider, well, a good life would be that type of life that I would be happy in. Some later on in life would say, well, happiness is one thing, but I more want to feel satisfied in life. Again, there's a gaping hole in their thinking because they don't know what necessarily will make them happy. They don't know exactly what's going to make them set, create that satisfaction within them, that fulfillment within them. And they go from thing to thing to thing to thing looking for that happiness or fulfillment, and each and every time, as it falls through, they grow further discouraged, They've, they grow further uh, um, dis, in despair and in depression, and as a result, they finally come to the conclusion that I'll never really find what I'm looking for. Now, this happened to the wisest guy in the Bible, and no, he wasn't in the mob. The wisest man in the Bible, of course, next uh, much lower than Jesus, was Solomon. Solomon had everything that you would want to have in this world. He had it in greater abundance than we could ever possibly imagine. There are those who believe that his wealth in today's market would be in the trillions of dollars. He had it all. And yet, at the end of his life, When he had time to reflect upon it all, when he knew he was getting older and he knew that he didn't want his children to make the same mistakes that he had made, he realized that even though he had all the wisdom that God gave him, his free will, uh, instead of exercising that wisdom in a godly way, he exercised it from an earthly, fleshly way and was unsatisfied with everything that he had accumulated to the point where he actually talked about hating his life in ecclesiastes 2:17 through 20 notice what he says therefore i hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing me for all is vanity that is emptiness and it's grasping for the wind Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun because I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turn my heart and despise Of all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun. It didn't mean anything when it was all said and done. He wrote Ecclesiastes to his children so they wouldn't repeat the same mistakes he made and start from the beginning by honoring God in all things. There's a life that can be had in this world that leads to emptiness, and there's a life that can be had in God that leads to fulfillment. As one wrote, Dr. Warren Worsby, he said, this kind of life has little to do with possessions, statues, or fame, but it has a lot to do with character, faith, and the desire to honor the Lord. They seek the Lord and want nothing less than His will for their lives. As the psalmist wrote, he says, "Delight." In verse Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. This is where it begins. Allowing God to create within you the desires that he would have for you and then he will bring those desires about. Now again, the word desire here must be interpreted. It must be defined, I should say, before we can properly interpret it. Just like the word good needs to be properly defined here in our text, this word good is very important. Paul talked about good. He talked about good and he used it in a way that many today do not understand. He said, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And many have walked away. Their takeaway from that verse is that everything happening in my life is going to finally result in all of those things that I personally want in my life. And they subjectively define that word good in that manner. But Paul then defines the word good for us in verse 29. You know, if we ever are confused by what a verse means, may I encourage you to read before and after that verse? Keeping it in its context will often naturally reveal to you a proper interpretation and understanding of that verse. But he said that this good is conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. It's bringing you back to the image in which God originally intended you to exist within. Now, that perfection will never be perfectly fulfilled here in this world, but we should be a work in progress, getting closer and closer and closer until that day that we stand before the Lord and are then for, therefore perfected for all eternity. The word desire here in Psalm 37 is a lot like that. The desires of the heart are initially put in your heart by God. That's what David meant when he said to delight yourself also in the Lord. Meaning that as we learn about God, as we learn about what God has for us, when we learn about what God desires for us, his desires for us become our desires for ourselves. And then he brings about the desires of our heart that he initially Put within our heart. Make sense? See how it means something completely different? We've all desired something, right? Something that isn't necessarily promised within the Bible, whatever that may be. Corvette! We all desire something. But what God promises to provide are the desires that He puts and instills in our heart. That's what's important. So the life in which David is promising through the fear of the Lord, the good in which he is describing that life within is all determined and defined by the Word of God itself. The life that we have here in this world today apart from Christ, first of all, is a world of what I would call a personal absence. We're always missing something. We always believe if we just obtain this one thing, whatever that is, blank space, fill it in yourself, a relationship, a material possession, a job or a career, a position, a title, whatever it is, that we believe that whatever this thing is will satisfy us. But yet we can't obtain it, let alone maintain it, And because of that, we get discouraged in our hearts. Then those who are, you know, fortunate enough to ascertain and to claim that or to gain that in their life, guess what happens? They then find that it wasn't the satisfying thing that they thought it would be within their life. And they continue to look for something more. And eventually... The byproducts of this pursuit, of this emptiness, are characteristics such as worry, anxiety, and fear. Now, the life that God promises us, the more abundant life, the whole that we have that needs to be satisfied is satisfied not with something, but someone. God himself. And God doesn't promise that he will provide everything that we want, but he does provide, promise that he'll provide everything that we need. With God reigning in our heart, we are then satisfied, and we are not on that continual quest to find something more. And the byproduct of the, that satisfaction the abundance that he uses to describe this life in which he gives us are characterized by joy, by peace, and by love. Only that can be found in God. And what God is saying is that I will satisfy you, I will be with you, and from my presence within you through my spirit, peace, joy, and love will be fruits of that relationship. And therefore, it doesn't matter what I personally experience or go through, right? Nothing's going to change the fact that God is with me. And I can be joyful in times that wouldn't necessarily naturally warrant joy. I can find peace that surpasses understanding to guard my heart and mind, that I don't need to be anxious. And ultimately, I can rest at night knowing that my God loves me and showed that love through the sending of his only Son, Jesus Christ. That's the life that the fear of the Lord in the life of the individual would provide that David promises. And so by enticing not only his audience at the moment, but us this morning, is that a life that you desire? A life of satisfaction in Christ. A life that is characterized by joy, peace, and love. To allow you to weather the storms of life, the trials, troubles, and tribulations. And to know that God is with you and that he'll never forsake you. And that you can have a peace that surpasses understanding to guard your hearts and mind rather than running to worry, fear, and anxiety. That's what David is saying here. And if you're interested in it, then we need to continue reading. Because he shows us the practical way in which that may be obtained. Now, notice what he says here. This is very interesting. In verse 13, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. First of all, he said, speak what is true. And second of all, he said, seek what is good. Speak what is true and seek what is good. Now, what does that mean? Why would that indicate a life governed by the fear of the Lord? Well, we have to understand a couple of things. Number one, the individuals in the Old Testament were governed by a covenant that God had made with Moses. It was called the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant required individuals underneath it to be obedient to the law of God. So the very first thing that they needed to do is to know the law of God so they could be obedient to it. But it wasn't enough just to know it, they needed to act upon it. Okay? With that came a promise. God says that if you do these things, you shall be blessed in this way. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you don't do these things, you will be cursed in this way. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now, letting the Bible interpret the Bible, we get further insight of why David speaks of these two things. Because at the core of what we say and what we do, there's a common denominator. Do you know what that common denominator is? Our heart. Our heart. Notice what he says here. In desiring what is good and speaking the truth. Notice what the writer of Proverbs, Solomon himself, said concerning the mouth. Why is this an important element of fearing the Lord? Proverbs twenty one twenty three. Solomon writes, "Whoever guards his mouth and tongue." keeps his soul from trouble again he wrote these things to his children hoping that they would learn from them and not experience the same difficulties that he experienced i don't know about you but i'll be honest with you all i think you as your pastor you should demand that of me my mouth before i got saved got me into a lot of trouble i had no problem i i My dad was convinced that my gift and contribution in life was to mouth off. I would say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong people all the time. And I got in a lot of trouble for doing so. I didn't hold back. My dad asked me once, he said, don't you ever think before you speak? I said, dad, I don't have time. I need to get it out. And as a result, I would get into all kinds of problems. And for some reason, when someone was in a position of authority over me, I was just like, you know, I'm going to test this to see how far it'll go. I wouldn't suggest doing that with a police officer personal experiences have told me that that is not a good thing. We have to be very careful on what we say. We need to consider what we say before we say it. Of course, James launches into this huge um, discourse on the effectiveness and the evil of the tongue, doesn't he? But it isn't simply the words that we choose that are important for our understanding this morning. Though that is an element of important, it's not the most important thing. The psalmist said something very interesting. David, of course, Solomon's father, Psalm 141, 3-4. through four. David said, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Do not incline my heart to do any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Now David begins to allude to the real revelation that the mouth allows for. And if there is any ambiguity in what I'm getting at, Jesus clarifies it very specifically. In Matthew 12, 34, when he was rebuking the religious leaders, notice what Jesus says. He says, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? Notice what he says next. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is revealed through what we say and what we do. Notice that. The heart of the individual is revealed by what we say. Eventually, their words are going to give them away. If their words are... My voice still cracks. Lord, soon? Soon, Lord, am I going to get past this? I am convinced that I am the Charlie Brown of Christianity. And there are people in my life like Peppermint Patty who just like to pull the football away. Was it? No, it was Lucy, wasn't it? Lucy. But that being said, and it had no re- impact upon our message this morning, just a little side trail there. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Bitter people will eventually speak critically of others fearful people will speak from their fear out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks david alluded to that when he said do not incline my heart to do evil things after just saying set a guard O lord over my mouth the theological consistency between old and new testament must be seen it's the same idea but under two different governing covenants, we'll see in just a moment. But not only do we have to keep our tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, revealing where the true nature and character of our heart is, he then says, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Our actions our words are all governed by what's actually happening within a person's heart. The teaching of the knowledge of God, that is, who He is and what He desires from His people, creates in the individual that conscious awareness of God and His requirements, commandments, and that knowledge in and of itself therefore creates within us the fear of the Lord. That's what David is saying here. And to know that that fear of the Lord has been created inside the individual, listen to what they say and watch what they do. Listen to what they say and watch what they do. That will indicate if the individual has truly learned the fear of the Lord. And this is how David proceeded to teach them what the fear of the Lord is. And both what we say and what we do is all derives from our heart and where our heart is with God. Now, Something very interesting. Isaiah 32, 17 tells us very clearly that the work of righteousness will bring about peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance. James says it a little differently and I want to read this to you before commenting. James in the New Testament wrote to the believers of the church, He said, who is wise and understanding among you? Now notice what he says. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your where? Shout it out. hearts. Hearts. Notice what he says. Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion, and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is at first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. Now, what he's trying to say is this, if you didn't catch it initially, is that our faith, and he says this earlier in James 2, our faith is confirmed and identified by what we say, being aware of the tongue, and by what we do. And if our actions are governed by godly wisdom, then our actions and tongue, our, our speech will be pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality or hypocrisy. However, though, if we are dominated by a worldly wisdom, notice what he says here for there will be envy and self seeking, confusion, and every evil thing. There are, are there, excuse me. Notice that he is saying that our actions, our words are all derived at where our heart is. Now, isn't it interesting with the rise of selfishness in our nation, self-centeredness, being self-consumed, how much confusion there actually is in our world how much evil there actually is within our world, how much envy there actually is within our world. What James is trying to do is he's trying to help Jewish believers, individuals who were once Jewish, who became Christians, understand the fundamental difference between the Old and the New Covenant. The Old and the New Covenant. Though the Old Testament and New Testament say the same thing about the outward manifestation of the heart being found in our speech and in our actions, there are two very different sources that enable us to do that. In the Old Testament, it was simply the knowledge of the law and the understanding of who God is, right? But in the New Testament, we are under a new covenant that is shown to us, now notice with me, we're... In uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, turn there with me in your Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself because those of you who like to outline or underline or highlight or put emoji stickers or whatever it may be, I want you to see this. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant that God will instill through Jesus Christ. A covenant is an agreement between man and God. Some covenants are unilateral, meaning it's all dependent on one. And there are other co- uh, covenants that are bilateral, that are dependent on both parties fulfilling a certain responsibility. The knowledge of God alone, and what, who He is, and what He desires from man... That knowledge in and of itself wasn't enough to get past the fallen nature. Does that make sense? Yes, they knew who God was. They knew uh, what God wanted from them. But in and of themselves, they could not fulfill it. This is what Paul talks about in Romans and in Galatians. They couldn't do it. They couldn't change themselves. So God said that I will change you. I'm going to do for you what the law could not do for you. I'm going to create in you a new heart. And that new heart is going to allow you to desire me and desire what I have for you. Instead of just the knowledge in and of itself creating that desire... God is going to actually change the heart of the individual, therefore allowing us to desire and to do what He is asking us to do. Now there is one very interesting verse within this. Well, they're all interesting, but there's one that really jumps out concerning our teaching this morning. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make With the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. For I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Notice verse 34. No more shall they every man teach his neighbor. What did David just say in verse 11? I will teach you to fear the Lord. Under the new covenant, because we are new creations in Christ and the Spirit dwells within us, we don't need to be taught that anymore. The new life, the Spirit brings about that desire, it brings about that knowledge through the Word of God, and it gives us the desire to and the ability to do what God is asking us to do. Notice, he says, my old covenant, you couldn't keep it. You consistently broke it. That's exactly what Paul's saying. That's exactly what he said in Galatians and Romans. That's why you can't be saved by keeping a strict regiment of rules and regulations. And Jesus said it this way. Though impossible for man, all things are possible for God. He said that after speaking to the rich young ruler who turned away because he couldn't sell his possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow Jesus. The disciples then asked, Who then can be saved, Lord? With men it is impossible, but through God all things are possible. The new covenant gives us the ability from within. The new life gives us the ability to desire Or to delight in the Lord. And he will give us the desires of our heart. It gives us the ability to uh, shed the flesh. And to live in the spirit. Reckoning the old man to be dead and alive and anew in Jesus Christ. What the law could not do, Jesus did perfectly for us and will do perfectly in your life if you will simply believe on him. So what's interesting to me is that when James talks about this wisdom manifesting from its from our hearts, showing us who we are, Paul said it this way, you'll know them by their fruit. Or Jesus said that, and then Paul elaborated on that when he said you know the flesh and the spirit war against one another but he who walks in the spirit shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh and he goes on to say these are the fruit of the spirit a natural byproduct of god working in us i'm the farthest person from having a green thumb i think mine's more purple I mean, I just walk by plants and they die. That's why all of these are plastic. Other people, though, they're like the plant whisperers, you know? Grow. yeah. It's amazing. But I don't care how hard you try, you are not going to be able to plant a tomato and will the fruit into existence, will you? You can sit there and you can chant or hold your breath or whatever you're going to try to do to make that tomato come about and yet it's going to be fruitless. But what we can't will, nature does itself. A natural product of the Christian life is the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says these are the fruits that you will know one who has truly been changed on the inside. And he says, but know that there's also the works of the flesh that will indicate where a person truly is. What the law could not do, Christ did for us. Paul said it this way. He said, make your calling, and I'm sorry. He he said, let us know. Oh, he said, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Ooh. But then he went on. But know this, that it is God who works in you to will, that is desire, and to do according to his good pleasure. It's God who works in us. So the fear of the Lord has been superseded by something that is superior to fear. Can anybody think of what that is? James talks about it. He says it's a new law that we are all governed by now that who superseded the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant, and is found in the New Covenant. He calls it the law of liberty. It's the law of love. For Jesus said the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The fear of the Lord, which which would motivate my heart to consider what I say and to consider what I do, has been replaced by love for God. Love is the greatest motivator that a person can have. It can do things that nothing else can motivate a person to do. Love is incredible. And that's what Jesus came and said. If you love me, what did he say? Keep my commandments. So the fear of the Lord, a reverence and a respect, initially created through the knowledge of God, of who He is and what He desires. But the individual, therefore, found himself wanting because he was unable to keep the law of God. Paul said something, though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, isn't it? Kind of interesting when you think about, oh, I want to do the right things, but I continuously don't do them. Those things I want to do, I don't do. And those things I don't want to do, I do perfectly. I think I read that somewhere. But in the new covenant, and Paul was speaking in the new covenant, he was talking about, now we have the assurance that it is God who is working in us. So we delight ourselves in the Lord by spending time with him in his word and in prayer. We get to know him and allow the spirit and the new life to grow within us. And in that growth, we deepen our love for God. And as a result, love for others. And we do those things that God has asked us to do, not only because he's given us the ability to do them, but he's given us the desire to do them. In closing, I just want to read to you 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-12. through Finally, of all of you, be one-minded, he writes. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tended hard, tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And Notice that he quotes, For he who would love life and seek see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the lord uh, of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the lord is against those who do evil though found in the Old Testament, still is relevant for us today. But the fear that would motivate one to desire and obey has been replaced by love. And it is God who gives us the will and to do those things for Him.